I hear in all of your writings and your talk, hear this underlying current, oh, that so touches built environment and social geographies and this and that, yes. but but I haven't heard you really explicitly talk about it. So <laughs> I'm like, I've got to talk to this guy. <laughs> yeah, I got it. I, I understand. It. This is, so I, my, so my father was an architect. Oh, get out! Yeah. <laughs> so, That's so cool. And I'm sure that, I mean, I pay a lot of attention to architecture and space and I'm not a, obviously a designer or an architect or a sociologist, yeah. but I, yeah. It's inevitable that in a lot of my work, I end up thinking about space a lot. Yeah. Um, built environments a lot. Because it's almost like you talk about it like this kind of background given, and it's like, oh, because your dad's an architect. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Hello, and welcome to Shared Space, a podcast about the power of architecture and design to make us healthier, happier, and more connected. I'm your host, Erin PD, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. you all, it is hard to express how excited and nervous I was for this amazing interview with Dr. Mario Louise Small. Mario instantly put me at ease and is just such a gem. He is not only amazingly intelligent, but humorous, kind, and extremely passionate about serving communities in need. So Mario Luis Small is the Grafstein Family Professor at the Department of Sociology at Harvard University. He has published numerous award-winning articles, edited volumes, and books on the topics of urban poverty, social networks, relationships, and really looking at and diving into quantitative and qualitative methods, which we don't even scratch the surface of here. Um, He has some amazing books from Villa Victoria to Unanticipated Gains, and his most recent book, Someone to Talk to, How Networks Matter in Practice. I have long admired Dr. Small's work and noticed these amazing undertones about the built aspects of space as he talks about some of his conclusions around social networks and what shapes the ways that we connect with others. And um, I was happily surprised to find out that his father is actually an architect. Um, And so that really says so much about... um, what shaped his early experiences, and we dive into that and so much more on this episode. Dr. Small, Mario, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to Shared Space. It's a real pleasure. When you were growing up, kind of think about a place of connection. What comes to mind? That's a great question. I would say the street corner. So um, I grew up in Panama City in Panama, Mm -hmm. and I grew up in a neighborhood. Uh, This was a kind of working class neighborhood where a lot of the houses on either side of my house and right across were inhabited by people who had also just moved into the neighborhood. It's a brand new neighborhood. And everybody had boys. And just be, you know, so it was my house. It was my brother and me. Mm -hmm. And next door to us, there were three boys. Across the street from that, there were three boys. Next to that, there were two boys and a girl. A couple doors down, another two boys. I mean, there's just something in the water. (laughs) And because of gender norms at the time in Panama, boys were allowed out 
up in the street at all hours, far more than girls were. Mm-hmm. And so in my neighborhood, on my block, uh, there were just always a lot of boys the same age, just hanging out. Yeah. And uh, there was a corner, uh, just two houses down from mine, I'm just literally at intersection, mm-hmm. uh, a T actually. Uh, and we spent a lot of time, a lot of time there. <laughs> you know, there were just, there were not many cars because, yeah. you know, it was a T. So, you know, you weren't going in there unless uh, you, you, and then there was, it was a T and then uh, the stem of the T, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. was a dead end street. Yeah. And so there were not a lot of cars there because, mm-hmm. you know, you weren't going in there unless you lived there. Yeah. And so we, yeah, we spent a lot of time you know, from ages, I don't know, five until 17. That's awesome. So is that like stoop culture? Like help me visualize it. So uh, imagine a very high density neighborhood with Mm -hmm. all one story houses Mm -hmm. that are all something like two or three bedrooms and one or two baths in very small lots. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, I could literally hear my neighbors on the phone. Yeah. When they were speaking <laughs> on the telephone. And so it's a very, very tight-knit group. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, you know what it looked like. I mean, we also spent a lot of time in each other's porches. Because in those times, you know, a lot of the houses had porches because it's hot yeah. inside. And playing yeah. video games, not video games, but board games. Yeah. This is before video games were as big as they are now. Yeah. But a lot of it was literally sitting on the curb. Yeah. Uh, on the street and playing soccer or... You know, it evolved, you know, yeah. first playing tag, yeah, yeah. then playing hide and seek, uh, then playing soccer and basketball, mm-hmm. all in the same street corner. I love it. So I wanted to, you know, give a little bit of background on social capital and social ties. So for yes. anyone that's not familiar with this idea, can you give us some background about what they are and why they're so important? Yeah. So you can think of social capital as all the resources you have access to by virtue of your networks. Mm-hmm. And um, you can think about social capital as something that you as a person have or as something that a community or even a country has. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you think about the social capital of a community, what you're thinking about is all of the things that the community has mm-hmm. that allows it to get things done because of the nature of its networks. For example, a high trust, a high level of trust. If there's a high level of trust, people can get a lot of things done very quickly uh, and more efficiently than in communities uh, where there's not a lot of trust. Think about hurricane hits and people need to come together, you know, uh, crisis hits, yeah. or think about people need to stop watering their lawns so much because there's a drought. All of the things that affect communities, you can imagine if there's a high degree of social capital, trust, other elements, they'll do it more effectively. As an individual, Mm-hmm. social capital is analogously all of the things that you as a person have access to because of your networks. So the classic examples are, you know, you're looking for a job. If you can get information about good jobs through your networks, that means you have a lot of social capital in your networks. And that particular form of social capital is information. Mm-hmm. If, you know, you have a lot of people you can trust in emergencies, you know, you need to give somebody the keys to your house, you need to give somebody access to something really personal or whatever it is, again, having that social capital can make you uh, fulfill your needs or your goals a lot more effectively and efficiently. So that's how we think about social capital and their relationship to networks. You know, think about our parents. Yeah. We could be let out and spend a lot of time outside because everybody was sort of watching everybody else. 
Mm. Right. They didn't have to worry where we were because they knew where we were. We were out with everybody else's kids. Yeah. And so social capital can be effective in that way as well. I love that. That's perfect. Um, so one of the things that um, you kind of talk about is bridging versus bonding um, yes. ties. So maybe you could just say a few words about that too. So uh, it's a distinction that's been around for some time. The idea of bonding social capital is the kind of social capital that comes from communities in which people have a lot in common. Yeah. And so uh, it's often associated with a lot of trust, with a lot of sense of community, a lot of sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine that being part of a community like that can sort of give you a good sense of well-being. Think about right now during COVID, a lot of yeah. us are isolated and so on. Having sort of people you can bond to, connect to in that way, that kind of social capital is valuable. Yeah. The idea of bridging social capital typically or often refers to connections to people who are very different from you another bridge to sort of other communities. And what's useful about that idea is that, um, you know, the people who are most useful for certain kinds of things are not necessarily the people who are most similar to you. They can be the people who are most different from you. They're the ones who are most likely to know something you don't already know, to be connected to people you're not already connected to, to have access to resources you don't already have access to. And so that's how people think about that distinction. There's other ways of thinking about the same idea, but that's it's, it's essentially yeah. the, the heart of it. So I think you started to touch on it, but can you talk about how these different types of social ties or just how social ties in general are impacting our health and our overall well-being? Yeah. So it's, a, it's that, you know, especially in a time of COVID. Yeah. So, I mean, I can tell you the general way of thinking about these questions, which yeah. I think too often has ignored the importance of space. Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about the role, if you want, of space in it. So there's overwhelming evidence that your connections matter to your well-being. And this is just about, there's, no matter how you approach the question, you're going to find some version of that answer. Yeah. For example, we do know that people who feel lonelier, um, that loneliness, a feeling of loneliness, yeah. The sense that you're not connected to those around you, the sense that you are not have a lot of friends and so on, that feeling is associated with both mental and physical health outcomes. Yeah, people, lonelier people die sooner. Uh, seriously, I mean, you get, you, get, yeah. you know, you, yeah. if you give mice in a lab cancer and you put uh, half the mice at random on it by their own cells and the other half in a group with other mice, the lonely mice will die faster of cancer. I mean, it, there's just, yeah. I mean, at all levels, there's just overwhelming evidence of this. The late John Cassiopo has a lot, has a great book on this. Yeah. And loneliness. Uh, but then there's also, um, there's also the sort of the importance of things that are not necessarily just loneliness, but connections. So think about loneliness as a feeling, mm -hmm. right? You're literally just what you feel in your head. And um, think about connections as what you have sort of objectively. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, some people uh, don't know that many people. They have two or three friends, but they don't feel lonely at all. Mm -hmm. That can be good. Ten people, they run into regularity, but they feel lonely anyway. Yeah. So the impacts of loneliness and the impacts of objective connections, yeah. uh, both matter. They just matter differently. You know, everybody has had a different experience with COVID. I mean, there's nobody who has not been affected. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of people have been affected drastically by the physical distancing and the social isolation, meaning yeah. before they were in one of the many offices, restaurants, 
you know, office buildings, universities, schools, yeah. where they ran into people. And think about kids in schools. They ran into people on a regular basis every day. Mm-hmm. And now for a year now or close to a year, they've essentially been at home uh, with using technology to try to engage with people in the same way that they've been at home. And I think one of the things that's become clear is that uh, just as uh, in Zoom classes cannot replace the full school experience that a child goes through or a teenager goes through when they're in a school, going to the cafeteria and interacting with people in the hallways and seeing their classmates react to a lecture and interact. Um, uh, just as it doesn't do that, so does online life not replace for all of us, I think, uh, what we had in the physical space context. And I think a lot of what we have lost, a lot of the grief that a lot of people experience has to do with those uh, interpersonal physical contacts, not necessarily physical in the sense of touching, but yeah. physical in the sense of presence uh, that we all had and many of us took for granted. And so, you know, I can give you some examples in the context of, of work. Yeah. You know, suppose that, you know, before you worked in some space where you had to interact with others and now you work from home and you're one of the fortunate people who can have still has a job and it's a job where you can sort of work from home. Well, um, if you're like many people, there might have been a period where you're like, oh, my goodness, this is the best thing ever and I'm so productive. <laughs> uh, but I'm sure if you're like many people, that's no longer the case uh, for many people. And here's, yeah. like, you know, here's what you lose. You lose um, the opportunity to run into strangers. You lose the opportunity to run into friends or colleagues or acquaintances. You just sort of run into people. And why does that matter? Because it turns out a lot of the reasons we end up uh, feeling that we belong in a community is because we normally run into others. Yeah. Um, separate from the feeling, there's the doing. So one of the mm-hmm. things I've found in a recent book is that people are willing to confide a lot of personal things to people they're not that close to. And a lot of that happens because you run into people at the moment where you need to talk and they're there and you've seen them enough that you feel completely comfortable uh, with, uh, with sharing with them. That happens a lot at work. You know, think about the water cooler yeah. conversation. There's a big difference between the water cooler and the fridge, you know, <laughs> right? You can yes. go to your fridge and have a glass of water, but it's just not the same thing as, you know, talking about Breaking Bad or whatever it was, or frankly, not just that, just just inter- feeling, again, you, yeah. you, you're participating in a community with others. So just feel like we're part of a community. Totally. I think, I think so often about social dynamics that are as that double-edged giving. Um, and I've heard you talk about how, yes, if you have a, a tie, uh, that person going to be helpful to you, is going to be, you know, helping to support you. Chances are you're also beholden to them. And I hear us becoming more individualistic, but at the same time, this recent kind of backlash of like self-care, we can't care for ourselves. We need to care for each other. Mm. What's interesting about the pandemic is that it's provided several different instances of opportunities for doing this. So you might remember early in the mask conversation, and we all know that the, I think a lot of the messaging by authorities, both nationally and internationally, was very mess, was, was messy around this. But a lot of the discussion was about whether it helps you or it helps others for you to wear a mask. Yes. Right. 
And, you know, there were, I mean, I remember being in some research teams where a lot of what we were debating, this was about, you know, 10 months ago, 12 months ago, uh, whether messaging focused on what masks do to you versus messaging focused on what masks do to others would be more effective. With a lot of people thinking, no, 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 you got to talk to the, you got to talk to them about themselves, otherwise nobody's going to do it. And right and you but have I don't... a finding my question i wondered that so much like that was constantly <laughs> going through my mind yes. I was like, who's studying this who has this answer <laughs> we didn't we didn't see strong effects uh but this was early yeah. so this was this was a study we did right as the pandemic was starting and so there was yeah. a lot of conflicting messages and so who knows what we're picking <laughs> up you know we don't know if we were picking up reality or like what was coming through in the media and how yeah. that was modeling the results yeah. So, but I think that exactly. And and if you think more broadly, you know, you're totally right. And I love this, that you pointed this idea, the, the self-care narrative. Yeah. Of course, it's important and you want to think about self-care and so on. Yeah. Um, and self-care is important. And there are very many communities and individuals who have not prioritized self-care. Yeah. And in fact, uh, the absence of prioritizing self-care, uh, I just have to say this, um, yeah. there's now... Uh, good evidence that in heterosexual households with children has mm-hmm. primarily affected women because uh, they've earned, I mean, the, the productivity among women in that category has dramatically dropped and that of men has not dropped at the same rate. Yeah. Uh, and measured in a whole bunch of ways, uh, you know, probability of opting out, et cetera. And, you know, and so I, so, so anyway, so self-care I think is important and it's important to bring it bring bring it to light in the context of just that. Yeah. But at the same time, it's very easy um, to 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 focus on the self part of the self-care part as opposed to the care part. You yeah. know, um, I, I think on that order orientation, which is very easy to think about when you're in the presence of others, mm-hmm. is easier to give up when you're just by yourself all the time. And you know, you have your Zoom meetings and then you you know, shut off. Uh, on your own. So I, I, yeah, I think that this is actually a really important issue. Awesome. So one of the things I was wondering, and you started to kind of allude to it, but was throughout this pandemic, I was curious how the nature of our social connections have changed. I've heard so many people mm-hmm. posit their personal experiences, which are wonderful, but it's like, well, what does yeah. the emerging data actually say? Yeah. So the answer is it's not clear. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> I know. It's very annoying. But I can promise I can give you something a little more concrete. Than this, that we don't know yeah. yet. So yeah. I'll give you some examples of things I thought were going to change that mm-hmm. we found haven't changed that much yet. Oh, cool. So um, so one of the things that happened after the pandemic started was the George Floyd murders and, uh, and Breonna Taylor and the massive protests that followed. Yeah. So it turns out that right before the Floyd incident, I had launched a pilot study where we were interviewing um, a sample of women of any race, mm-hmm. of African-Americans of any gender, and Asian and Asian-Americans of any gender. Okay, there were three groups about whom they talked to about okay. their personal experiences with discrimination. Okay, and then oh my God, the, how timely! You just gave me goosebumps. I'm sorry. Yeah, right. And so then the murders happened, and as you you might recall, that right after, it was like a huge awakening. Everybody yeah. talked about the importance of 
you know, fighting discrimination and all sorts of large-scale companies all over yeah. the place felt compelled to post statements, and it was really everywhere. Yeah. Uh, about more equity and so on, and you couldn't turn open a newspaper uh, in okay. anywhere in the country. I don't care, conservative, liberal, north, south, didn't matter. Everybody made some kind of statement, and it was out there. And so we thought, and of course, um, it was not of course, but you know. The the big protests with everybody going out on the street are not unrelated to COVID. This these happened just by coincidence three months after people had been locked up, yeah, uh, and totally physically distanced, and they were frustrated about this anyway. And so you know, I mean, I'm not speaking yeah. in terms of motivation, just sociologically. Yeah, you know, it's the kind of condition where you would expect something yeah. like that to happen. And so uh, we did a follow up about three weeks. Uh, no, 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 about five weeks after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so before and after, like, uh, you know. Oh, that's, uh, that, I mean, that's so, I was like, I hope you got before data. <laughs> yes, we did. And so we did the same thing. And we haven't written this up yet. We're working on it right now. So this is not something that's public uh, yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually, this is the first time I've talked about it. Uh, but um, we found almost no difference. Wow. Exactly. I thought there was going to be a change in the number of people who disported experiences, in who they talked to, the composition of the people they talked to, the probability that they were talked to others about it. There were almost there's almost nothing. The only thing that inched up a tiny little bit is the proportion of people who said that experienced discrimination in one or another mm-hmm. form. Tiny impact. But in terms of how we relate to our networks around something I thought would be so very little change. Uh <laughs> Very little change. Yeah. And so that's one way in which I, you know, you want to say, well, clearly this is a massive change and and we didn't see it. Now, there are other things where I'm I'm quite certain we're going to see some changes. Well, we we can already sort of tell we've seen some changes. Yeah. Um, So loneliness is going up. Yeah. Um, We know, and for particular populations. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I was telling somebody, I would say if you were to make a gross generalization, yeah, a gross generalization, an emphasis on gross, as in this is not, <laughs> um, I would say um, it's made single people living alone lonelier. Yeah. It's made uh, life for married couples with children harder. Mm-hmm. And life for married couples without children. Mm-hmm. Maybe more comfortable, yeah, assuming everybody has you know, controlling for having yeah. a job and all of the conditions, etc. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're not seeing a lot of bored people trying to find make sourdough among people with children. Uh, <laughs> <at the time. laughs> um, yeah. And look, everybody has problems in different ways. But I think the reason I'm pointing that out is that if you think about the composition of the household, you have to think about the experience of loneliness and yeah. stress in very different yes. ways. We know to look for. Uh, kind of greater loneliness overall, but particularly at certain populations, a lot of strife among yeah. among people with children, yeah, especially school aged children. Schools closed, people with you know both parents working, and uh, a child in school. Yeah, school closes, and parents have to work from home. That is uh, oh. uh, that gives rise to the gender difference I saw earlier. Yeah. Um, we know also that people, many people have withdrawn many relations, particularly the relations that were maintained by the spaces they interacted in. 
Mm-hmm. So if we think about, you know, it's funny, we often think about friendships as things that are formed or not formed, like make more friends, etc. But <laughs> friendships also have to be maintained, yeah. uh, literally from the minute they're formed. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the spaces where we interact with others, work and, you know, the restaurant and the bar and the construction site and all of those places, those are essentially institutions that were maintaining our friendships for us, right? We always went there. We didn't have to do a lot of labor uh, to maintain that relation, even in a superficial way. Yeah. Now we do. And so for a lot of people, uh, I think it led to a reconfiguration of their friendship structure uh, towards those they feel more comfortable and more interested in maintaining, a, doing the effort yeah. that before you didn't have to do and away okay. from the effortless ones. So one of the questions uh, I had around that was just um, real quick was about like essentially people saying kind of what I, I think I hear you saying, which is, well, maybe you have fewer contacts, but they're deeper or mm-hmm. like, is that true? Or yeah. Uh, I have not seen good tracking data on this. Okay. I just haven't. Yeah. I would be extremely surprised if something like that didn't show up. Okay. Yeah. On the other hand, um, I also would not be surprised if after things open up fully, people go back to normal. Yeah. And I'm just clarifying what I mean by normal. And so I think, look, I think a lot of people will have been changed in a long-term way. Yeah. But um, in study after study that looks at network turnover, you tend to see the following. Uh, so when people change work, they move to a different city, have kids, all of the kinds of events that end up altering your, you change your routines, you're going to change your networks, Right. Yeah. So if when when people and I've I've done one of these studies myself, when you look at the changes in your network, your friendship mm-hmm. network as a result of changes in some aspect of your daily routine, yeah. COVID is one huge massive change in in everybody's daily routine, um, and uh, and you're going to see another massive change after we kind of go back to normal. Yeah. Um, you often see the following: the composition of the network changes very quickly. Literally, even if I ask you, you know, so if you move to a new city tomorrow mm-hmm. uh, and today I ask you who your closest friends are, you're going to give me some names. If I ask you in a month, you're going to give me a lot of different names. Um, just one month. Even if I just say, yeah. who are your closest friends? Who are the people you trust with your most personal life? Who are your closest friends? You're going to see quite a bit of turnover. But what's interesting is that the numbers don't change. Mm-hmm. So if you, name, if you gave me five names today and I give you... Tell me just how many close people you have. You give me five names, you're going to give me five names in a month. If you're giving me three names, you're going to give me three names in a month. So it sounds like we haven't have a, this is not quite Dunbar's number, but we kind of have our own somewhat variable capacity and limited capacity to maintain close relations with others. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked a little bit about the built environment. Um, in a lot of cities that you talk about, there is this undercurrent of how the city was originally designed to reflect the culture of the people in a way of living that was more close knit than the way we yes. live today. Yes. Um, although you rarely mentioned the built environment explicitly, I was just wondering if you've had any experiences that stood out to you for places that you feel the environment has impacted um, the connections of communities. Yeah. Yeah. I can think of several contexts actually in which yeah. that has happened. So one is in a housing complex I studied in Boston, in Via Victoria. I think you mentioned the book earlier. Yeah. The This is a housing complex built right in the middle of the South End in Boston. For those of uh, listeners who are not from Boston, the South End is not South Boston. 
Boston is confusing in that it has two different, very different neighborhoods with the word South in it. South Boston is what people know as Southie. Um, it's the neighborhood with the complicated racial history that people may remember and so on. The South End is a neighborhood smack right, right in the middle of Boston, very near a lot of the commercial retail uh, activities in the city. But it's a residential neighborhood, a very large residential neighborhood with beautiful brownstones built in the late 19th century. And, um, and townhouses and row houses of various sorts and so on. And um, this, this neighborhood, this housing complex is right in the middle of the neighborhood and it has, and it was built to support community locally. And so um, it has, uh, its streets are one-way streets that are U-shaped. So you kind of only go in there if you live there. Um, and it has a little park and a little plaza with benches and so on for community to gather. And, and physically, the buildings are also small kind of townhouses, but they look different from those in the surrounding neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I am certain that this contributes to the fact that many of the residents in the neighborhood, I mean, there are other differences, uh, but it's a very, uh, in many respects, not all respects, but historically has been a very isolated community from the surrounding South End mm -hmm. uh, in both directions. And, Many have tried to change that over the, especially over the last several years, but that's a clear case of, you know, you, you, you create a space to build community locally. Yeah. Uh, if it's successful, you might actually also create a space that undermines community uh, translocally. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, right? I mean, that there's only, like you said, there's only so many connections and that tightness exactly. of the in-group naturally affects the openness to a larger group wow exactly yeah. right i mean if you imagine a map uh and you know imagine a a, a circular city and i put a, a in right in the middle of it like a target a small neighborhood and we're going to call it erinville mm -hmm. and we make erinville uh, physically in the middle of the city now you have some options. Um, you can make the streets uh, in Erinville go east to north and north to south so that everybody can pass through this through Erinville when they're going from one end of the city to the other, mm -hmm. right? Or you can make the streets in right, and so it's going to yeah. be a high traffic area where people are passing through, and easy to connect the people in it and out of it, but you know, uh, hard for the people in it to maintain a sense that they're special or part of the community. Mm. Or you instead, uh, if you go back to the target and you put that neighborhood in the middle, you um, you make streets that come from east and dead end in Erinville and west and dead end in it, and north and dead end in it, and south and dead end in it. That means anybody driving those streets is, has to be somebody who lives there or is visiting somebody there. Yeah. And so you restrict access and you're more likely to sort of build the intera the interactions in Erinville are going to be more likely to be those of people who live in it. Yeah. But you're going to restrict access to the outsiders. So a lot of them, this isn't completely inevitable, but a lot of the mm -hmm. mechanisms that end up contributing to one, I think, uh, end up contributing to the other. Yeah. I, and as it relates to child care centers, you know, it's so interesting. Yes. I, I'd love to hear you talk about that. I want to share a tiny anecdote, which is that yeah. my one of my dearest friends now, we met 
during a natural disaster where I had no power in my house and I had to go hang out basically in the lobby of the childcare center to like <laughs> charge a few things. And we started yes. talking and now, <laughs> now our kids play and we help pick each other's kids up. And um, that's perfect. Yeah. So, um, but for anyone that's not familiar with that research, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so basically what I just described at the city and neighborhood level, I've also seen at the organization level. Yeah. Meaning you can create an organization with spaces that contribute to you know, community within the organization itself. And you just gave a great example. Uh, so I, did a, a, I wrote a book where I studied the networks of mothers who had children enrolled in childcare centers. And at the time I wrote this book, I did not have children, and I was surprised by a lot of this. You know, one of the things we found was also that uh, whether parents, particularly mothers, it was mostly mothers who we studied, uh, just because it, at the time, it's still the case, actually, childcare centers are very gendered. Teachers, staff, cooks, directors, et cetera, most of the parents who pick up and drop off are women. Um, but um, even though there was an overall pattern, there was also a lot of heterogeneity. I'd love to hear you. I know that you have so much research that talks about, you know, how these things look a little bit different with people that um, are of lower socioeconomic status, you know, experiencing poverty um, and why that's so important um, and why, you know, their geography and all, all of those impacts. Maybe you could say a few words about that. Yeah. So, you know, um, we, so first, um, it's going back to the theme of COVID. Yeah. Um, I think one of the reasons, one of the many ways COVID has affected different people differently mm-hmm. is that um, local organi- local institutions, you know, barbershops, childcare centers, churches, all of these were places where low-income populations in very high numbers formed and maintained their social ties. Mm-hmm. Their support ties, their information ties, got the, bridge, the bonding capital um, where a lot of people did so. And the closing of these places essentially removed a lot of the institutions that made passive maintenance of your connections possible. Yeah. I think you're going to see consequences of that. And I think it's and that's one of the things I think is just hardest. Um, I guess I'll I'll qualify that by saying it's not a qualification, but it's more of a clarification. Mm-hmm. So you know, in the study we talked about earlier, when we looked at mothers with children in childcare centers, we looked at low income, moderate income, high income, a couple of quite wealthy uh, parents. There's mm-hmm. national data and also data in New York City. We looked at white mothers, uh, African-American mothers, um, Asian and Asian-American mothers, Latina mothers, across the board, you saw, you saw these impacts. And I should say, we saw the impacts both of the enrolling the children in an organizational space on the expansion of your network, mm-hmm. but also of the network on your eventual well-being. So the mental health of the mothers who had kids in centers was actually higher than those with comparable kids who were not in centers, even after we took into account prior mental health before the kids were of childcare center age. Okay, and the mechanism, uh, a very powerful mechanism was the formation of networks there. It wasn't just like, well, I now can go to work and of course matters, but the networks themselves mattered. 
So, so it, it affects everyone. Yeah. Um, but I think part of what's important is that uh, not everybody has similar resources to make up for the absence of those opportunities. And I think that has been one of the big consequences uh, of COVID. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I remember when I, you know, hearing that um, data point that you just shared and I was just totally floored. Um, yeah, it, it makes so much sense. When you talk about and think about designing for social connection, if you wish that there was one thing that designers would consider, what yes. would that be? And I would say the following. I think designers should consider multiple aspects of the community building network formation process rather than just one. So at a minimal level, creating an opportunity for people to interact is better than not creating an opportunity for people to interact. Right, so the lobby as opposed to no lobby yeah. makes a difference. Yeah, but then um, one can also design a space to increase the probability that that opportunity is capitalized on, and there's evidence for this as well. Um, there's really nice, interesting work on the role of uh, two different things. One is composition, and the other one is configuration. Mm-hmm. On composition, I will just point to the role of focal points. Um, there have been all of these fabulous studies showing, for example, take a plaza and you put a sculpture, literally something to look at, and it affects the probability that people connect more than not. There's quite a bit of research on network and the role of focus of activity. But seriously, simple, sort of thinking about uh, focal points, if you want to use that language, I think will yeah. make a difference. You know, You probably know of all of the work, for example, showing that in office buildings, it's not only the case that people whose offices are closer to the elevators know other people at higher rates. And we've seen this in multiple different kinds of studies, yeah. at the neighborhood level and also at the, yeah. at the local level, but also that people whose paths overlap. Mm-hmm. So for example, people who take similar paths to the bathroom, to the water cooler and to the elevator are more likely to know one another than people who don't. In fact, there's even research on school settings among principals in schools that uh, teachers whose paths overlap in the way we just described are more likely to consult one another uh, on curricular matters than teachers whose paths don't overlap. Okay, So designers can play a big role, not just in the presence of networks, but also in their use by thinking a little bit just beyond the make a space to kind of configure and compose a space is I guess what I would say. Love that. Oh, love that so much. So is there anything else that you wish I'd asked or wanted to share? I would love to sort of think about, maybe I'd love to hear your podcast in in six months, is to see how is COVID changing all of this? Yeah. You know, I I tend to imagine and there's some evidence already that we're going to return back to normal in terms of regular practices pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, people will, as soon as people can go to the office, it's like going to the office. And so I'm, the mayor of New York already announced that 80,000 city resident, uh, city workers have to be returned to the office. No more online anything beginning, I think, uh, the end of May, something like that. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, so we know that, that people, many will push for that. But, mm-hmm. but yet it's hard for me to imagine that some fundamental aspect of our relations hasn't been changed. 
Yeah. You know, a year of reflecting mm-hmm. on this, of going through some hardship is not easily forgotten. And I'll just, you know, this is not, you know, um, something that we have data, obviously, to think about. But I'm just, I would just be very curious to see what this conversation looks like in six months. Right. Well, Dr. Louis Small, I cannot thank you enough for sharing your time and your story. And it has just been so much fun talking with you. Um, so thank you. Same here, Erin. It's really, it's really fabulous. I, I, I love sort of talking about these issues, and especially from, from the perspective that you're bringing, which I think is, is, is an interesting one that we ought to be hearing a lot more from. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Shared Space. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe wherever you're listening and head on over to Apple to give us a review. It really helps to spread the word and we really appreciate it. I hope that your day is filled with honest emotion, kindness, and connection. Thanks so much and take care.